Hello, and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia, with Dr. James White. Episode 5, Around the World, the tale of Ivan Goncharov. We are in the Bay of Nagasaki. Its waters lap against the creaking wooden hull of a Russian frigate, the Pallada, amidst the balmy August of 1853. The ship is a very unusual guest. For centuries, the Japanese had vigilantly cut themselves off from much of the rest of the world, a consequence of traumatic experiences with Western firearms and missionaries in the 16th and 17th centuries. But now the world had changed. Only a month before, the American Commodore Perry, commanding the steam-powered Mississippi, had cruised along Japan's coastline, threatening to unleash devastation unless the Japanese came to terms. The Russians tried the carrot rather than the stick, bringing with them heaps of gifts and generally not delivering any threats. They acceded to interrogations by anxious Japanese officials, speaking through Dutch interpreters. After days of negotiations, the Russians managed to wrangle a ceremonial dinner with the governor of Nagasaki, but this landed everyone in a quagmire of diplomatic protocol. The Russians refused to sit and eat from mats, while the Japanese adamantly rejected chairs. Thus, chairs had to be brought to the palace from the Pallada. Meanwhile, the Japanese hastily set up raised platforms for their own dignitaries, so they would not be seated lower than the foreign guests. The Russians refused to remove their boots upon entry, so the Japanese provided foot covers. The food was yet another adventure. In their silk, colourful kimonos, the Japanese partly deftly manoeuvred edibles with their chopsticks. The Russians, stuffed so tightly into naval uniforms and frock coats they could barely bend, were provided with knives and forks so they could pluck at the puzzling candied carrots proffered to them. The final straw, though, was tea served with a clove in the bottom of the cup. Utter barbarism in the Russians' view. The Japanese negotiators, however, were no kinder to the tea served on the frigate, which they complained was like tasting medicine. One individual might have seemed out of place compared to the distinctly military bearing of his compatriots. Indeed, the Japanese diplomatic debriefings labelled him as the Fat Barbarian. This was the portly novelist and bureaucrat Ivan Goncharov, an inveterate civilian with little taste for the soldierly life. How did this man, so much more at home with the pen than either the sword or the sail, find himself so far from his natural habitat, the literary salons and government offices of St. Petersburg? Born in 1812 into a wealthy merchant family in the city of Simbirsk, Goncharov had resolved not to return to the stultifying life of the Russian provinces following his graduation from Moscow University in 1834 instead opting to become a translator for the Ministry of Trade. Moving to St. Petersburg, he rapidly engaged with the intellectual ferment of the capital. In these years, Russian literature was seeing the rise of some of its greatest stars. Ivan Turgenev, Fyodor Dostoevsky and Leo Tolstoy all published their first works in the 1840s, along with many other less internationally well-known writers. Nikolai Gogol, was already a fixture of the literary scene. The first part of his novel, Dead Souls, 
bringing him widespread acclaim in 1842. At the same time, Russian literature was already beginning to generate its notorious reputation for political and social radicalism, much unnerving the dry and dusty regime of Tsar Nicholas I. The novelist and commentator Alexander Herzen had already found himself exiled in 1835 to the provinces for having had the temerity to sing songs deemed uncomplimentary to the emperor. He finally left Russia forever in 1847, spending the rest of his life rushing from one foreign revolution to the next and leading the Russian press in exile. Far less fortunate, Dostoevsky, later the author of Crime and Punishment, was sentenced to four years' hard labour in Siberia in 1849 for having read out a proclamation critical of the government and serfdom, the state of slave-like bondage in which the majority of Russian peasants were kept. Goncharov's literary breakout was not so stellar. His first novel, 1847's An Ordinary Story, was quite well received, but hardly turned many heads. Equally, he kept his distance from the political fervour then dominant in the literary scene. No doubt this led the government, ever on the lookout for potential allies to help them tame the beast of Russian letters, to view him as their writer. Hence his assignment to the prestigious Pallada mission in 1852 and his assignment to the Censorship Bureau in 1856. It was in this office that he finally turned out a true masterpiece the novel Oblomov. Here he tracks the lives of two very different Russian noblemen, the infinitely lazy, incurably fatalistic, but compassionate and sensitive Oblomov, and the businesslike, industrious, but somewhat cold Schultz. In their friendship and romantic competition over the heart of a particularly fair lady, Goncharov aims to show the two sides of the infamous Russian soul. But all this lay in the future. As of 1852, the government wanted Goncharov to accompany the frigate Pallada, as it undertook a world-spanning mission to the lands of the rising sun. His job on board, besides helping with translation, was to provide a poetic portrait of the trip, one which the state could showcase in its official journals to a no-doubt awestruck population. The objective of the frigate and its commander Admiral Yefimi Putyatin was to arrive in Japan just after Commodore Perry. The Russians would present a friendly foreign face to contrast with the American threat of guns and steel. With this favourable impression, perhaps the Russians could emerge on top of the hurried Western race to exploit Japanese resources. And the imperial government also had its eye on China, where the weakening Qing dynasty had already brought forth hovering British and French vultures, ready to peck themselves off a piece of the pie should the opportunity present itself. In the great hurry to divide Southeast Asia and dominate the Eastern Pacific, the Russians did not want to go home empty-handed. So, on the 9th of October 1852, the frigate Pallada and its 465 sailors set forth, heading first for the British harbour of Portsmouth. The plan was to swing south across the Atlantic, sweep around Cape Horn, and then proceed north to Russian possessions in Alaska. However, heavy storms in the Danish Sound 
forced the Pallada to seek long repairs in Portsmouth, making them miss the chance to attempt the horn. Pujatin thus decided they would take a different approach, head to South Africa, pass the Cape of Good Hope, and then cross the Indian Ocean, docking at British, Dutch, and Spanish colonies as they approached Japan. But why attempt either of these long sea journeys at all? Thanks to their control of Siberia and Alaska, didn't the Russians have ports in the Pacific, whence ships could reach Japan in a matter of weeks? Indeed, Russia had ruled over a stretch of Pacific coastline since the second half of the 17th century. However, this bird's-eye view of geography neglects the realities on the ground, especially in an age before telecommunications and the railway. Siberia, at the time, was horrendously underdeveloped. Cities were few and far between. The main road was little more than a muddy, wide track. Post stations and inns, where one could resupply and rest, were next to non-existent. The Russian government's practice of dumping its most violent prisoners in barely guarded Siberian labour camps meant banditry was rife and the police presence slight. The region's rivers mostly flowed north-south rather than east-west. The best possible time of year to travel was winter, as sleds could slide smoothly over the hard, frozen ground. But the severe cold would quickly deal with anyone who lost their way or suffered an accident. And even if you got to the easternmost coast intact, there were no shipyards at this point, just a few fishing towns. All in all, it was quicker, and safer, to traverse the globe by sea. And this the imperial state did for most of its official business with its far eastern dominions. Goncharov's own description of Siberian travel deserves to be quoted. 10,000 versts to St. Petersburg, and what don't we have here? Huge oceans of snow, swamps, arid abysses, and wet rapids, our own 40-degree tropics, the eternal verdure of pines, savages of all kinds, beasts beginning with black and white bears, all the way up to bedbugs and fleas. Instead of being tossed by the waves, you get jolted by the road, instead of the boredom of the sea, that of the land. And so, concluding its business in Portsmouth, the frigate sailed south, stopping briefly at Madeira before reaching its next port of call, the British colony of Cape Town. Goncharov was no sailor, a Sybarite who felt most at home amidst the myriad distractions of a city, the cramped confines and rigid military discipline of the Pallada were decidedly unpleasant. It must therefore have been some relief to him when the ship docked in the British port in March 1853. Goncharov and his crew arrived in the aftermath of one of Britain's perennial imperial wars in the area, the Eighth Anglo-Khalsa War of 1850-1853. Surveying the colony, the novelist was taken on a zoo-like tour of a local prison, wherein sat a captured cattle thief, stoically mute before his oppressors. Goncharov's depiction of this unfortunate reveals the author's deep prejudices. In front of us there stood a creature that barely resembled the likeness of a human being, 
about the height of a monkey. The dark yellow old face had the shape of a triangle with a sharp angle pointing upward and was covered in deep wrinkles. A tiny nose on this tiny face was completely flat. Thin and narrow lips were as if squashed. He resembled some kind of deranged old man. Praising the orderly houses and farms of prosperous European merchants, traders and landowners, and admiring the efficiency of British governance, Gontrov saw only ugliness in the faces of the black indigenous. Noting how the smiles of native women seemed to sequester only evil, while their language was bestial. The best he could muster was that the bodies of black men compared favourably with those of Russian peasants. Perhaps no compliment, given the perpetually malnourished state of most of the peasantry. Equally, the Russians garnered little attention from the natives, as a fascinating anecdote makes obvious. When the Russians started fighting the British only a few months later in the Crimean War, a rumour spread among the Africans that the Russians were a black people of the distant north, battling to liberate all members of their race. Crossing the Indian Ocean, the Pallada began a whirlwind tour of imperial possessions in the region, stopping at Java, Singapore and Shanghai. Here the visits of Goncharov and the officers were a social merry-go-round, as the local colonial envoys whisked them around dinners at the fanciest merchant homes. Now this was the kind of trip that a comfort-loving, ever-hungry novelist could enjoy. Only in Shanghai did he hesitate for some contemplation. Finding the Chinese laudable, if subservient, and the British contemptible for shoving narcotics down the native throats in the recent Opium War, he condemned the latter for their rank exploitation. Finally, the Russians arrived at their objective, Japan. Unlike the Americans, they did not fire their cannons, try and enter the sacred capital of Edo, or insist on negotiating with the emperor, something the Japanese apparently appreciated. This was, as the historian Edita Boyanovskaya puts it, gunboat diplomacy light. The Russians certainly did not ask for permission to enter Japanese waters. Goncharov's own description makes clear that force was always on the table. Here is a populous part of the human family that slyly avoids the ferule of civilization, that dares to live by its own wit and rules, that bluntly rejects the friendship, religion and trade of the foreigner, that laughs at our attempts to enlighten it, and that sets the inner arbitrary laws of its antil against the natural, national and all manner of European laws and against all untruth. How long will this last? We wondered, our hands caressing our 60-pound cannons. Negotiations between the Japanese and the Russians lasted three months, with the Russians confined to their ship for the entire time. Goncharov compared this to being in prison. In his notes, he speaks of how the Japanese negotiators loved being on the frigate, surrounded by the height of Russian technology. However, Japanese protocols describe the ship and its interior as dank and malodorous. The Russians had little understanding of Japanese diplomatic protocol, especially the practice of placing documents in several boxes of graduating size and wrapped in silk. 
Goncharov's account of a Japanese often fluctuates from sympathy to arrogance. At one point, he understands their desire to protect their homeland from outsiders. In the next, he condemns their childish isolationism, arguing that only the firm hand of a Russian schoolmaster could bring them up to standards. He admires Japanese nature, but then covetously explains how, if only it were under Russian management, it could be properly exploited for the benefit of all. So, although he concedes the Japanese are civilised enough to be considered a nation, as opposed to a tribe, the word he used for the African peoples he had met, Goncharov still regards their country as a honeypot ripe for the swiping. And even while he got along with some of the Japanese diplomats, he portrays them as zombie-like. Who are they, with their shaven foreheads, cheeks smooth as those of mummies, hung heads, and half-lowered eyelids, all motionless in their long and ample clothes, save for barely stirring lips, from behind of which there broke out muffled sounds, barely audible to our ears? Could these be corpses that are roused from a thousand-year-old tombs and gathered for a summit? Puchiatin got little from the Japanese, apart from a concession to continue talks. This was judged enough for the time being. Gontrov's next step was to land in eastern Siberia and then head home to St. Petersburg overland. This, he thought, would make a fitting conclusion to his travelogue, offering his Russian audience a glance at their homegrown empire after so many descriptions of foreign colonialism. But the seas were now dangerous. On the 16th of October 1853, Russia went to war with Britain, France and the Ottoman Empire. The Russian ships would now have to dodge British vessels, which would surely fire upon a ship as heavily armed as the Pallada. As they made their way speedily north, they had some time for brief stopovers in Manila and Korea. There was to be no meeting of worlds here, however. When they saw the Russian ships, the Korean villagers fled. Those who did not leave had to put up with the sailors barging into their homes. Goncharov says that some of them even held us back by our coats and sometimes shoved us quite rudely. We would beat back their hands and they would instantly quiet down and cower like dogs running after the passerby, eager to bite but not daring. Now came the longest and perhaps most arduous portion of Goncharov's trip, the 7,000-mile journey overland across Siberia. In August 1854, he disembarked at Ayan, a tiny harbour town founded by the Russo-American company only a decade earlier to help move seal blubber into the interior. Travelling north, he came to Yakutsk, called a city despite a population that barely peaked above 3,000. He described it in his letters with disgust, as tiny and filthy. Nonetheless, he was generally positive about the natives. The Saha people, also known as the Yakuts, were industrious and good-natured. This was, he eulogised, a result of good Russian governance, transforming beasts into men. As it was now winter, 
Goncharov was able to slide across Siberia in good time, wrapped up in a heap of furs in the back of his sled. He got back to St. Petersburg on the 13th of February 1855, two years and five months after his departure. His subsequent travelogue, entitled The Frigate Pallada, was an immediate hit, cementing Gontral's reputation as a writer of note. For many educated audiences, the book gave them their first glimpse of African, Indian and Asian worlds, all related in Gontral's affable, intimate style. Despite the fact that the text's overt racism and imperialism caused the anti-colonial Soviets no small problems with its interpretations, it remains a popular classic in Russia today. Regrettably, of the two English translations that exist, both are based on truncated Soviet versions that cut out the rather more problematic areas of Gontrov's work. So it remains largely unknown except to a Russophone readership. As for the Pallada's mission, it was counted as a success. A trade deal between Russia and Japan, the Treaty of Shimoda, did indeed follow on the 7th of February 1855, when Admiral Putyatin returned after dropping off Gontrov in Siberia. However, friendly relations were not to last, as the European powers began devouring bits of China. The Russians moved in and annexed the Amur Valley in 1860. Japan, rapidly modernising during the Meiji Restoration, also started to foster imperial ambitions. Both countries had their eyes firmly set on Manchuria, thus paving the way toward the Russo-Japanese War in 1904. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time.